not fear the one and only Tucker Carlson. He's here, right here, right now. Buck up, it's going to get better. Hello, welcome to Tucker Out. I'm Troy. I'm Tyler. And this is a show where we talk about Britney Spears superfan Tucker Carlson. <laughs> How you doing, Tyler? I'm doing okay. Yeah, so we are back on the nightly show this week. I had two-ish weeks to cover. We're going to be looking at the uh, the 21st through the 30th of June. But first, I think you got some names for us. Correct. We have three new patrons this week. David A. Arthur joined at the thank you tier. Thank you, David. Thank you, David A. Arthur. <laughs> and Colin Brown is just asking questions. Thank you, Colin. Yes, thank you, Colin. And Dismissive is just asking questions. Thank you, Dismissive. I got two names for a Dismissive. I'm going with the anonymous one. I hope that's fine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we were Dismissive of your real name. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's all for this week. So it's been a wild week. Um <laughs> Like I, I don't pay. I, I avoid Tucker Carlson news for the most part. But like, Florida building collapses after people reported the damage and no one did anything about it. Yeah, yeah. And then people who were there to help got evacuated a few days later because the second half of the building was probably going to fall. And I, I don't think it has as of yet. <laughs> Good, good time to gut that infrastructure bill, am I right? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and then and then a sex cult. There was a, there was a sex cult thing. I, happening. I didn't even hear about the sex cult. Yeah. So I, an actress that I'm not familiar with. I guess she was in Smallville. Oh, was Allison Mack in the, the yeah Nexium? Yeah. Uh, yes. Yes. That's the one. And uh, so she got prison for her role in the sex cult. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I, I wasn't aware there were new developments there. The um, I'm blanking on the the name of the leader of that cult, but he's a wild individual. I remember being incredibly mad that there was this sex cult, and the dude at the center of it was just some uggo. Like, <laughs> he, he was just, like, you're a regular-looking dude. Like, why why is there a sex cult around this guy? Like, Well, I mean, John McAvee had, like, 63 kids or some shit. It's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> R.I.P. <laughs> All right. Yeah, rest in piss. Um. <laughs> yeah, so those are those are all big news items kind of in this period, and none of them we're going to be talking about today. Because uh, Tucker Tucker had a buck wild week on his show. So there's obviously, I'm sure most people have heard this uh, this NSA story that Tucker claims he's being spied on by the NSA. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I, I I have some thoughts about that. We're going to be talking about that quite a bit. But other things he got up to this week, I saw. A lot of a lot of like headlines and shit. People outraged on Twitter. The Tucker had called General Mark Milley stupid and a pig, which is the first thing to address here. I have, I, I have some issues with the way that was covered, and we'll we'll get into why. Yeah, um, isn't it weird that the right is like turning on, like what would it like? I would consider Milley like. A conservative idol. He's yeah. like a decorated general who went to an Ivy League college and like. Yeah, he's he's like an accomplished. Like he's dedicated his life to military service. Like the the, but, but the yeah. Sorry, go. Ahead. The, the right should <laughs> idolize him, and it really shows that just like all that's left undergirding everything is just white identity. Like you challenge that, it doesn't matter who what, what else you've done. It's yeah. Now he's one of the wokes. He's gotta go. 
can't protect us from the UFOs. Uh, <laughs> also, the UFO report ca- came out, and Tucker does talk about it a bit. We're not going to address that in this episode, because uh, I, I, I want to do a more in-depth UFO uh, a deep dive, and we don't have room for it in, in today's show. But then, also, Tucker dedicated three segments on his show this past week to Britney Spears. And it was kind of funny the way it came up, because, like, he had never heard of the story before, and then I, I think on a Wednesday, like an hour before they went to air, he got notification that the actress Rose McGowan wanted to appear on his show to talk about something. And so Tucker was like, yeah, what's the point of a live show if we can't make room for unplanned segments? And when he was introducing her, he's like, so Rose McGowan wants to talk about something. I don't know Rose McGowan. Apparently it has something to do with Britney Spears. But then he got, like, super into the story and covered it two more times. So <laughs> it was kind of nice, honestly. Like, it was a nice narrative arc. All right. Um, but we're, we're not going to be talking about the Britney Spears coverage, y'all. Because a, a, a three-line through this week that I kept getting frustrated with, and I think this has really hit, hit home for me since that story about Tucker being a source of gossip for liberal journalists. What's really kind of come into focus for me is, like, Tucker is often intentional in the way he plays the media and kind of manipulates the coverage around him. And with that at the front of my mind, I was really frustrated over this period with what was getting covered from Tucker's show in other media. Like, all the outrage I saw was about him calling Mark, Mark Milley a stupid pig, um... There was a lot of coverage of the NSA story, but then also a bunch of, like, takes about his coverage of Britney Spears. And there's so much other shit going on this week that is so much more important. So that's going to kind of be a through line that we're tracking as we go. And then, before we before we dive right in, I wanted to, uh... I'm field-testing a new, a new bit here. Because Tucker asks a lot of stupid rhetorical questions. And after last week, when we had so much fun with the question, uh... What gay person eats cereal? <laughs> um, I I thought it might be fun to uh, begin every week with Tucker's question of the week. So here is one. He was talking to Marjorie Taylor Greene. She was very offended that the infrastructure bill, there was a segment where it said, for the purpose of this section, women will be considered a disadvantaged class. And, and this gem comes out of that conversation. <laughs> well, it's a little strange, too, because most Americans are women. So how can you have an oppressed minority that's actually the majority of the country? I mean, it doesn't kind of make any sense, does it? Yeah. What? So that's the level of nuance Tucker's approaching sexism with. <laughs> um, what? The... Really? <laughs> and what's, what's fun for me is that repeatedly throughout this, this week, when he's talking about the problem of racism against white people, I mean, you're going to attack 60% of the country? How does that work? So, by his view, then, wait, if if they are 60% of the country, how can they be oppressed? That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah, women's suffrage happened like 60 years ago. Surely <laughs> oh we're done with women's rights. Oh my god, I don't think I have the clip, but at some point, Tucker says in this week, um, we've been a race-blind country for like 200 years. Um, no. <laughs> what? Really? <laughs> That is so. That is so absurdly ignorant. Yeah, like <laughs> that is aggressive ignorance. Yeah, like the second we signed the Declaration of Independence, we we were done with racism. <laughs> <laughs> sure. All right. So, so with that, let's dive in here. The first thing I want to talk about happened on the twenty fifth when Tucker was covering the Mark Milley story. Because, like I said, I I saw all sorts of the, the Twitter sphere was alight for like a day and a half. 
Just it, Tucker Carlson is calling General Mark Milley a pig and stupid. How can he not be fired? Blah blah blah. I, I wanted to play the introduction to that segment before he even brings up Mark Milley because there is so much crazy shit going on here. And welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. Want to hear an amazing story? It has the benefit of being both true and illuminating. Here it is. In 1851, a man called Samuel Cartwright came up with a fairly sophisticated scientific explanation for why so many slaves were running away from plantations in the American South. These fugitive slaves, Cartwright explained, were suffering from a medical disorder. It was called drapedomania. It was a syndrome characterized by an uncontrollable or insane impulsion to wander. So that was the problem. It wasn't they disliked being enslaved or yearned for freedom and basic humanity. No, no, no. The problem, according to Samuel Cartwright, was that black people as a group were inherently defective. They were drapedomaniacs. They were always running away. That's what he said. 107 years later, it is embarrassing to repeat something this stupid out loud. It's so obviously insane. But here's what you should know. Drapedomania was taken very seriously at the time, and so was Samuel Cartwright. Cartwright was not a fringe character at all. He was a nationally prominent physician, a former high-ranking army officer from Fairfax, Virginia. He went to Penn Medical School. Samuel Cartwright was a credentialed man of science who commanded the respect of the country. Fifty years after the Civil War, one of this nation's leading medical dictionaries continued to maintain an entry for drapedomania. So in retrospect, of course, we would call Samuel Cartwright a bigot, which he undoubtedly was. But he was also more than that. Cartwright was a practitioner of something called scientific racism. Tucker Carlson is trying to criticize someone for treating brown people as less than human. Yeah, that's, it, that's what we're starting with today. <laughs> yeah, he's he's going to talk about scientific racism here. He literally interviewed Charles Murray like a week ago. So... Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, so th- that's how we're starting off this segment. Now, it, he he's going to he's going to explain for his audience what scientific racism is, and I'll be interested to see if you can figure out where he's going with this. Scientific racism is deeper than simple prejudice. It is the use of science to justify the dominance of one group over another group. Scientific racism has a history as long as science, simply because the impulse to dominate is inherent to human nature. So it's not really about color, though it's called racism. Instead, it's about power. Martin Luther King wrote eloquently about this. So did Dr. Seuss, by the way. You might want to take a look at what they wrote, assuming you can still buy their books. The point is, scientific racism never actually went away. It's still with us. No one talks about drapedomania anymore. Instead, our medical professionals and law professors and military leaders and politicians and cable news hosts have identified a new disorder they claim explains everything bad. It's called whiteness. There we go. No, that, that's not what's happening, actually. Um, I guess we're done. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it, he's going to pretend here that whiteness and white rage are a medical disorder, which no one has, is saying other than Tucker no, Carlson. No, absolutely not. I hate his, like, violence and domination are inherent to human nature, because I strongly disagree with that. I think that the power structures in place incentivized behaviors of domination until uh today actually (laughs) (laughs) but i think that if you change the power structures you can change the incentives and change 
the way people behave. So Yeah, and honestly, like a, a big part of military conditioning is because it's really, really hard to get people to kill other people. Yeah. I I mean, there's always been violence in human history, but it's not it's not like a a necessary condition. Right. Yeah, I agree. Um, material conditions when your needs are met, you're a lot less likely to be violent, which is why crime goes up when the economy is worse. Yeah. So yeah, uh Whiteness is scientific racism. Um, <laughs> we're, we're, we're gonna do later this month. It'll. Uh, I don't know exactly when it takes. It'll. It depends on how long the the reading takes me. But I'm gonna. I'm gonna have it done this month. We're gonna do a bit of a deep dive into the critical race theory, moral panic. Um, Ooh, fun. Because one, I want to get a better handle on like what critical race theory actually is, and then um, the really the playbook for turning this into a moral panic. It's all repackaging of like this cultural Marxism conspiracy theory. Um, yeah. And this all started with the student Chris Rufo, who was a fucking shill. Uh, <laughs> so, and I, I've been reading a lot about Chris Rufo, so we're, we're going to, we're going to get into that soon. But for now, it, what I really just want to say is that when Tucker talks about these concepts like whiteness, or he's about to talk about white abolition, he, he doesn't understand what, what these terms mean in like academia when whiteness is talked about as a problem, it's not about people with white skin. It's about the the societal construct of white power. Yeah. And white abolition, obviously, is about undoing that. Yeah. <laughs> so just keep that in mind as he gets hysterical about white abolition here. <laughs> in the universities, it has become an article of faith that were it not for the indelible stain of whiteness, America could be a utopia. Only whiteness stands in the way. That's why we must abolish it. As Harvard Magazine put it, abolish the white race. Only then can we be happy. Lots of people seem to believe this. They're not all bad people, just as not everyone who believed in Samuel Cartwright in the 1850s was evil. Some people are just gullible. They're looking for meaning in their lives. If you hand them a unified theory of everything, some percentage of them are going to buy it wholesale. There were nice people at Jonestown in Guyana. They just didn't know any better. It's their leaders that you wonder about. They do know better, or they should. And when they talk about this new iteration of scientific racism, when they talk about whiteness, they sound very much like old-fashioned bigots. Take this guy, for example. His name is Eric Michael Dyson. He's a tenured professor at some stupid college or other. He lives in a rich, almost exclusively white neighborhood. He goes on television a lot. Watch him as he talks about race and ask yourself, honestly, if he sounds any different at all from, say, Bull Connor or David Duke. He doesn't. Only the colors have changed. Here he is. And speaking about, you know, the maggots, I, I'm sorry, the MAGA, um, that is so corrosive in this, you know, political uh, moment. And we have stood by to see mediocre, mealy-mouthed, uh, snowflake white men who are incapable of taking critique who are willing to dole out infamous repudiations of the humanity of the other, and yet they call us snowflakes and they are the biggest flakes of snow to hit the earth. They are incapable of criticism. They are incapable of tolerating difference. They're scared of, oh my God, critical race theory is gonna kill your mother. And they don't even know, they're not critical. They have no race and they don't understand theory. Yeah, so that sounded a lot like uh, David Duke there, right? Concerns about the indelible, indelible humanity of the other. That was a big sticking point for David Duke. <laughs> yeah. No, that didn't have any 
<laughs> okay. What? Oh my god! I cannot believe Tucker put that thought in someone's head before. Yeah. To millions of people who've never listened to David Duke speak, he's like, "This guy sounds like David Duke." Listen. Yeah, I, I, I didn't hear him say anything about the Jews, weirdly enough, but no. I'm sure it was in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then like that that Harvard line that Tucker said that abolish the white race, only then can we be happy. That was a quote from a book that Harvard knew, Harvard like it was like a book review, but it. Again, Tucker doesn't understand any of these terms he's complaining about. But that doesn't stop him from really, really ramping up the stakes here. White men, they're the problem! You hear that so often that you don't pause to consider what a change this is. It used to be only a few years ago that the one thing you couldn't do in America was attack people in public on the basis of their race. I don't like that group because of their skin color. Let's hurt them. You couldn't say that. It was the one unacceptable thing, and for very good reason. You cannot maintain a multiracial democracy unless people of every color have exactly the same rights and responsibilities under the law and are considered of precisely the same moral value under God. You have to have that. That's the most basic prerequisite for a multiracial democracy. All lives have to matter, or it cannot work. It's pretty clear that our leadership class, for whatever reason, doesn't want it to work. Obviously, they don't. Look at what they're doing. When you hear people ascribe blood guilt to a specific racial group, when you hear them talk about the sin of whiteness, what you're watching is the death of our future as a country. Okay, that was a leap. So, We've had several civil rights movements and not had the country collapse. I mean, I, I grew up in a town that was almost entirely white. And yeah. it the exact phrasing, I don't like their skin color, let's hurt them, maybe wasn't said, but the sentiment sure fucking was. Yeah, and, like, BLM today gets abused by the police. Like, yeah, it, it, it's happening right now. <laughs> oh, it's never happened to me. And, like, <laughs> it, it, it's so clear when you get to the bottom of this that Tucker is afraid. Like, okay, white abolition means the deconstruction of white hegemony. Yeah. Tucker is freaked out about it. Like, on some level, he knows that, right? And he's freaked out because he doesn't want those power structures dismantled. Because he's really afraid of being treated like everybody else. He likes his spot on top of the throne. Also, just just talking about, like, the, the elites want to destroy our culture, that reminded me. He had Pedro Gonzalez on again this week. Great. Um, I don't My have... favorite. <laughs> our favorite fascist. Um, I don't have the clip, but he... They were talking about how Bill Gates is the largest owner of farmland in America. I did hear about that. Yeah, which I don't love, by the way. No, not, um, not good. And then uh, Pedro Gonzalez at one point said that workers need to seize the means of production, which... That's I, an interesting... Uh... Like, that, the, he used that specific phrasing. Like, I'm not sure that you're behind the uh, the connotations there, Pedro. Yeah, no. <laughs> I mean, he did say that Marx's critiques of capitalism were correct, but... I am so confused as to where Pedro is at in his head. He's so hard to get a handle on. Yeah. Okay, okay. My guess, this just came to me now, the thing that fascists do is pretend to be socialists, right? Yeah, that's fair. The National Socialist Party. Right. Okay, so if I look through it at that if i look through that lens i think that kind of makes sense if you pretend to be a socialist to get people behind you and then gain power and then use your power to 
get rid of all of the uh, the others, then you're winning at fascism. Yeah, there by you pretending go. to be a socialist. Okay, there you go. we did it. God, he's such a good fascist. <laughs> um, <laughs> Maybe he shouldn't be on the biggest cable news show ever. I had a dream that I was moving to rural Ohio, and I was worried that I was going to run into Pedro Gonzalez at a gas station. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, the show is destroying Troy's psyche. Let it be known. I I might be broken. (laughs) Okay, so then uh, here, I I saw I saw recently critical race theory in the month of June was mentioned on Fox News like four hundred and thirty seven times. (laughs) Oh, not good. Okay, but but here Tucker talks about how he doesn't actually like that term very much. We can't live in a nation of warring tribes. We know very well what that looks like. Because it's the history of the world. It's miserable and vicious and bloody. We can't allow that. Most Americans of all colors on some level understand this. They don't always have the words to articulate it, but they know it. When their kids come home from school with assignments to suggest that all races are not, in fact, equal, that some races are guilty and some are innocent, that some groups are oppressors inherently and others are inherently oppressed, In the universities, this is called critical race theory. So that's the term that most people go with. Critical race theory. That's what we so often debate on television. That's the clip we just showed you. But critical race theory is an inaccurate way to describe what's happening. Like so much academic jargon, the phrase critical race theory doesn't mean anything. Just want to give Tucker credit where it's due. I agree. That's not an accurate way to describe what's happening. (laughs) But also, that's not what critical race theory is. Um... Admittedly, I need to do more reading on it, but my, from my understanding, it critical race theory does not say white people are inherently the oppressors and b- brown people are inherently the oppressed. Yeah, no, it, it has its basis in legal theory, analyzing like why, under ostensibly the same laws, that certain people had worse outcomes than others, and right, and so it's it's like an, an, an analysis of those power structures. Yeah, like what I took away from what I did read so far is like. Critical race theory is the theory that systemic racism exists. Essentially, yeah. (laughs) It obscures rather than illuminates. It is designed that way. It is designed to confuse you. What's happening in our schools and our military and our government is both simpler and easier to recognize than that. It's not critical race theory. It's racism. Not neo-racism or reverse racism. Those are meaningless terms. It is race hate. It is peddled by the people in charge in the hope that it will make them more powerful. That's all it is. We haven't said that often enough or clearly enough. And because we haven't, because we've been tied up in some pointless debate about a concept that nobody can actually define, the race hate, and that's what it is, has oozed from the universities and it has infected the entire country, including at the very highest levels. Yeah, so that's all cultural Marxism shit that, like, the university professors are injecting this into the mainstream. Yeah, and, like, I'm just realizing it now, but, like, who the fuck cares what universities... Like, what average person is like, oh, Harvard said something, so I better change my entire belief structure about race. Yeah, like, the right has this myth of, like, the the university student who goes in bright-eyed and innocent and comes out an indoctrinated leftist, and, like, I just don't know any of those people. Yeah, (laughs) I've been... in and out of college a lot. I've never met anyone like that. <laughs> so then at this point, this has been a seven-minute rant about racism against white people. It, it's scientific racism that it, they're telling you whiteness is inherently bad and a society can't function like this. 
And now this is where Mark Milley comes in. Mark Milley is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He didn't get that job because he's brilliant or because he's brave or because the people who know him respect him. He is not, and they definitely don't. Milley got the job because he is obsequious. He knows who to suck up to, and he's more than happy to do it. Feed him a script, and he will read it. Here's Milley yesterday, the man in charge of this nation's weapons, explaining that he's working to understand a concept called white rage. I do think it's important, actually, uh, for those of us in uniform to be open-minded and be widely read. And the United States Military Academy is a university. Uh, and it is important that we train and we understand. Uh, and I, I want to understand white rage. And I'm white. And I want to understand it. So what is it that caused thousands of people to assault this building and try to overturn the Constitution of the United States of America? What caused that? I want to find that out. I want to maintain an open mind here, and I do want to analyze it. It's important that we understand that, because our soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, and Guardians, they come from the American people. So it is important that the leaders, now and in the future, do understand it. Hard to believe that man wears a uniform. He's that unimpressive. Notice he never defined white rage, and we should know what it is. What is white rage? Well, like drapedomania, it's one of those diseases that only affects people with certain melanin levels. It's a race-specific illness. That's what Mark Milley has learned from reading about it. That's why he's making his soldiers read about it, too. They need to know. Watch. What? Holy shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so it, no one except Tucker is saying that white rage is an illness. <laughs> no. And he specifically said... I want to investigate what white rage is. Yeah, he just, why didn't he say what it is? He just said he wants to find out what it is. <laughs> oh my god. I'm sure there's more, but like, the thing, for fascism to be successful, you almost always have to like, have the backing of the military, so they're trying to shame anyone in the military who isn't telling the line. Yeah. And I don't like that at all. Yeah, and like... It, and th this is, I have no evidence for this. This is me talking out my ass. But I do worry that, like, for a lot of rank-and-file people in the military, this, like, I think this top-down push to, like, purge extremism and increase cultural awareness is admirable. But when it's mixed with this backlash, I really worry about it fostering, like, quiet extremist groups in the military. Do you know what I mean? I think so, Yeah. And again, I have no evidence for that. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I think there's some fear about the military fostering of extremism, even without any of this drama going on. You know, it's, it, it seems like you come out a hyper-nationalist sometimes, because you have to, like, you have to care about your country to a point that you're giving your life for it, you know? Yeah, it's it's part of that conditioning, how you get people to a point where they're able to kill other people. Yeah. Like, for a country. <laughs> yeah, and then and then they, when they serve their term, they have to come back and be in normal society, and we do a shitty job of, like, caring for our veterans, so sometimes that's not good. And then here, um, it, Mark Milley is going to talk about some of the things he's read, and what D Tucker's response to this is insane. I've read Mao Zedong. I've read, I've read Karl Marx. I've read Lenin. That doesn't make me a communist. So what is wrong with understanding, having some situational understanding about the country for which we are here to defend? And I personally find it offensive that we are accusing 
the United States military, our general officers, our commissioned, non-commissioned officers, of being, quote, woke. <laughs> he's not just a pig, he's stupid. So Mark Milley reads Mao to understand Maoism. He reads communists to understand communism. But it's interesting that he doesn't read white supremacists to understand white supremacy. Why not go to the source? Well, because Mark Milley would be fired instantly if he read those books, and getting fired is the one thing he doesn't want. So he reads about white rage as if it's totally real. It's a medical condition. <laughs> and by the way, since it's a medical condition, at what age can you catch white rage, by the way? Most of us assume that our two-year-olds were just teething. Now we know it's their whiteness that's making them so angry. Thanks, Mark Milley. We appreciate your contribution to our generation's scientific racism. By the way, have you read anything recently about winning wars? Apparently not. What a fucking lunatic. Yeah. Um, and then, again, like, using the language of the left, like, oh, he's not just a pig. He's an idiot. I, uh... Why don't you read white supremacists to understand white supremacy? What are you talking about? Like, that... Yeah. It's just that that hit my ears so fucking weird. Like, oh, he just doesn't get it. He hasn't read the right books. He'd be fired if he read those books. <laughs> and um, Tucker, once again, you were the only one saying this is a medical condition. You're like putting words in other people's mouths. And I I think what he's talking about when he says the the, the thing about two-year-olds and whiteness, there was a a study that like toddlers can demonstrate racial bias earlier than we would have expected. So it, if he's not just talking out his ass, then that's probably what he's talking about. I don't know. And then this is how Tucker caps off this segment about General Milley. We could go on and on and on. Pundit after senator after professor after general. Each one of them spewing race hate. Whiteness! White rage! Dressed up as some new academic theory. We certainly have the tape. We'll spare you because you've seen it. It's everywhere. The question is, and this is the question that we should be meditating on day in and day out, is how do we get out of this vortex, this cycle, before it's too late? How do we save this country before we become Rwanda? What should we be teaching our children so they can live in the country that you want to live in? A country full of many different kinds of people, many different, but who actually like each other, who are happy to work together who are united ultimately by the core fact, which is they're all Americans. That is the question. You don't seem very keen on the idea of working together with anyone who you think is woke. <laughs> right there, before we become Rwanda, he's like he's talking about an ethnic cleansing against yeah. white people. <laughs> yeah, which no one is trying to do. Yeah, like, that's insane. And, like, I, I could pull the clip from our very first episode where we got furious at Anderson Cooper for comparing January 6th to Rwanda genocide, because that's one of the worst strategies to ever happen in the world. But, <sighs> whatever. But the, the bigger point I wanted to make is, like, all the buzz, all the outrage, all the headlines I saw were about Tucker Carlson calls Mark Milley a pig. And, like, that was one one line, one stupid line within ten minutes of just white supremacist propaganda. Yeah. Yeah. The story there was so missed in favor of the insult. And that that's what I've been noticing is the way Tucker plays these games. Like he he know he's been in media forever. He knows what's gonna get covered and what's not. Yeah. So then um with that out of the way, we're gonna jump to uh a little bit earlier in the week and from here we'll go we'll go chronologically. This segment is also a little bit about whiteness, and it I'm not cherry picking these segments. This is like 
at least half of what Tucker talks about. It's all white identity shit. Yes, white supremacy is America's biggest problem. And as we've noted many times before, we still don't know, despite fervent and sincere efforts to find out what a white supremacist is. The White House has not told us. They have refused. So as of tonight, that remains a term without definition. By the way, if you've got a definition, send it to us. We'll read it on the air. Okay, challenge accepted. Everybody, <laughs> if you're listening, send in your definitions of white supremacy. I'll try to get Tucker to read them on the air. <laughs> Can I just send him a transcript of his show? Is that an option? <laughs> You can send him anything you want, right? I think. <laughs> yeah, it, the, he he plays these definition games all the time. So, oh, what even is that? They won't tell us. It's it, because you're being dense. Like, intentionally going out of your way to not listen to people who know what the definition is. <laughs> yeah, so then uh, at this point, he's going to get into some numbers. He, wa- he wants to really unpack this uh, this white supremacy thing. But they don't need a definition. They keep screaming, it's the greatest threat we face. So because we're highly literal on this show, we believe in language, we went searching for the numbers. Are there numbers to prove that? Because there are numbers on everything. Well, they're busy trying to create those numbers now. But for the moment, here's what we've got. Researchers at the University of Maryland run something called the Global Terrorism Database. Some of the data they produce are clearly highly political. For example, they count the Parkland school shooting as an act of white supremacist violence. It wasn't. There's no evidence that it was. How could you say that? But they say it anyway. So the numbers they have are inflated. And yet, the researchers at the University of Maryland could find fewer than 70 people in the entire country who died from white supremacist violence over the entire period between 2015 and 2019. How many people is that? Well, of course, it's too many. Any death is too many. But for some perspective, more people die in this country every year from lightning strikes. Literally. Look it up. So no, white supremacist violence, bad as it may be, is not a major threat. It's not even on the list, actually. Okay, uh, doubt. Uh... <laughs> yeah, so Tucker is playing a fun little game here where he manipulates his data set to get the lowest possible number. Yeah. Uh, I went to the Global Terrorism Database. For one, it's a little unclear why he picked the period between 2015 and 2019 because the database goes all the way back to 1970. <laughs> but there are some other omissions he's making. He filtered only for white supremacist attacks that resulted in casualties, whereas many of these attacks resulted only in injuries, property damage, or a foil before casualties could be incurred. Which means that Tucker is severely undercounting the instances of white supremacist terrorism even within his limited data set. The database is also very specific with its phrasing. White supremacist slash nationalist extremists is a category that it tracks, but here are a few of the other categories. Anti-Semitic extremists, anti-Muslim extremists, conspiracy theory extremists, pro-Trump extremists, anti-government extremists, anti-LGBT extremists, incel extremists, neo-Nazis, and the Ku Klux Klan. So, there are going to be varying degrees of overlap in all of those. I mean, obviously, not every incel extremist is also a white supremacist, but there's overlap. Yeah. And in cases of the Ku Klux Klan and the neo-Nazis, it's a fucking circle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And I don't do what about ism, Tyler. Of course. But what about? <laughs> but I have to say, <laughs> the uh, the violent leftist groups that Tucker complains about all the time, let's look at some of their numbers. Ooh. For that same time frame of 2015 to 2019, anti-fascist extremists were the cause of one death. 
Anti-police extremists were responsible for 13 deaths, and anti-white extremists were responsible for only four. In total, the groups that Tucker is so terrified of were responsible for 18 deaths in this period, a far cry from the 70 fatalities that he found when he searched for white supremacist violence. Oh. And then he, he's also only focusing on attacks in the United States, when a lot of the, the deadliest white supremacist attacks um, have, have been overseas, like New Zealand had a terrible one. And the, the trend of toward white supremacist violence is only globalizing, largely because of the Great Replacement Theory, which Tucker talks on his show, like, every other week. He sure does. All in all, the trends do point toward a persistent and accelerating problem of white nationalist violence. In 2020 alone, there were 73 incidences of white nationalist violence, an all-time high. Oh. Also, w- worth noting, he mentioned in there that their data set is skewed because they include uh, the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School shooting which he says there's no evidence it was a white supremacist attack. That's interesting. The shooter in that case, Nicholas Cruz, does appear to have some white identity-based beliefs. Um, He had engraved swastikas into his ammo magazines prior to the shooting. That said, in the immediate aftermath of the shooting, there was some confusion around this, and I think it's worth explaining what happened. In the wake of the shooting, it was widely reported that a white supremacist group called the Republic of Florida had claimed the attack. A spokesperson for that group even told the Anti-Defamation League that Nicholas Cruz had been a member of their group. However, that turned out to be a lie. Cruz was not associated with the Republic of Florida, and on white supremacist message boards and Twitter feeds, you can find trolls gloating over the disinformation and confusion that they sowed by claiming the attack. The ADL traced its original tip to posts on 4chan, where researchers found self-described ROF members claiming that Cruz was a brother-in-arms, but many of those posts seem to have been written specifically to deceive reporters. An anonymous 4chan user posted about receiving a message on Instagram from an ABC News reporter after making a joke suggesting he knew Cruz. Prime trolling opportunity, another user replied. You have to take advantage of this, a third chimed in. This kicked off a sequence of events in which far-right trolls intentionally misled the media into branding Nicholas Cruz as a member of this group. I'll link a political article that goes into more detail. But I think it's worth mentioning that, we're, that when we're talking about these types of people, it's important to take note of how they hijack the media ecosystem. Tucker here is playing a part in that ecosystem, too. His is one of minimization and reduction. So the trolls, their job is to sow confusion and terror. Yes. Tucker's job, on the other end, is when these events happen, he's going to minimize the role white supremacy played. He's going to downplay it. Yes. Downplay its role in a broader trend. I don't think Tucker necessarily wants violence, but I guarantee he'll dutifully be there the next time there is to tell you how it's not actually that big of a problem. Yeah. Just, I don't know, this feels like a horror novel to me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're not going to have a lot of fun this week. (laughs) No. Oh my god. Um, (laughs) Like, it's just a fucking joke to these people that, like, people are dying and getting shot. That's horrific. Also, he had swastikas engraved on his, did you say his gun or his magazine? Uh, his ammo magazines, yeah. And he's not a white supremacist, really? <laughs> yep. Okay. I mean, I had a, no, that guy totally was a white supremacist, never mind. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was about to tell the story about someone I knew in school who engraved swastikas on his pottery because he thought it was funny and got in trouble but i was like i I don't think i think he was just in it for the lulz but he did later told me like you know i just don't like black people wow (laughs) yeah my closest experience to that is 
I when I was in middle school, I tried to play up my disaffectedness. Um, or so like I was in an art class and someone was like, "Can I draw on you?" I'm like, "Whatever." And he like drew a swastika on me, and then like I got in trouble at lunch. <laughs> <laughs> I, hadn't, I hadn't washed it off yet. <laughs> And at what point did you join the Republic of Florida? <laughs> <laughs> Ten years later. <laughs> yeah, so after this, uh, Tucker is going to talk about crime and how the left has defunded the police and it's caused all this crime to happen. And their solution is gun control, and that's not going to solve anything. And then wh- while he's talking about crime, he uh, so he plays a video of a shooting that happened in Chicago. It, it, it was horrible. It was like the Puerto Rican Day Parade. The husband and wife were forcibly pulled out of their car and shot in the street. Um, and in the chaos, like, when an ambulance showed up, some people were twerking on the ambulance. What? Yeah, which, I, it, it, it's it's wild. I don't I don't even have, like, a good grasp on what was going on there. I but Tucker plays this video and uh, has some thoughts. Okay. Last week, we showed you footage of people in Chicago dancing on a police cruiser, and now we have this. Sociopaths, and that is the word for them, celebrating a shooting by twerking. What kind of society produces people like that who would behave like that? Do you know anyone who would behave like that? When you see people behave like that, you have to ask yourself, what are we as a society doing wrong? Is it no fathers? Is it the schools? Who knows what the answer is, but if we're not trying to find the answer... They were going to be guaranteed more of it. Anyone who'd celebrate a shooting is not someone you want to share a country with. So we should fix that. Is there a more important task? Probably not. But it's completely ignored. Could you be more overtly racist on cable news? I know. <laughs> like, okay. He, he can, oh, I was, ta- I was just talking about the kind of people who would twerk in the name of this. It doesn't matter what color they are. But he said... It must be caused by fatherlessness. Yeah. Or- yeah. Is it, is it no fathers? Is it the schools? You're talking about black people. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> and then at the end there, th- these aren't people you would want to share a country with. Okay, they're white nationalists. That's fine. Like, that's what that is. White nationalism? I don't even know her. <laughs> sure. Sure, Tucker. Um... Yeah, he he talks a bit more about crime and how it's all because the left defunded the police and they're trying to take your guns away so you won't have police or guns to defend you. And Can we talk about that argument for a second? Okay, people aren't allowed to have tanks, right? (laughs) Like, if if, if our right to have guns is predicated on being able to fight the government if they come to attack us, but we're also not allowed to have tanks... We lose, yeah. right? Like, that doesn't make any sense. Oh, my God. Like, did you hear Biden said something like that? And everybody was like, Biden's starting to nuke the American people. It's like, you idiots. I <laughs> didn't. How did I miss that? Yeah, Tucker did a segment on that, but I didn't cut it because I don't fucking care. <laughs> <laughs> it's less fun. <laughs> yeah. Than the overt white nationalism. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! <laughs> This will not solve crime. It will only disarm you. The real problems here have nothing to do with the weapons used and nothing to do with the race of the people committing the crimes. It's not a black person problem. It's not a white person problem. It's not white supremacy. It's not black supremacy. It's bad leadership by the people in charge. And it's on display all around us. Prosecutors, many of them funded by one man, George Soros, 
refusing to enforce the law. And the results are immediate. In the city of Philadelphia, for example, where George Soros helped elect Larry Krasner as the DA, arrests are hitting record levels, but convictions are dropping. In other words, the cops are doing their part and the prosecutors are refusing to do theirs. He fucking George Soros? Yep. Yeah. Uh, Okay. Almost every time he drops George Soros, it's in reference to these, like, progressive prosecutors he doesn't like. Because one of the political action groups that Soros gives money to is about, like, um, supporting the progressive prosecutor movement. So that's where a lot of this comes from. Um. He, he did talk about George Soros uh, shorting the British pound once, um, which is a, an old old one for these people. Um, uh, at some point, I'm going to do it, like, it. it's not omnipresent on Tucker's show, but he drops Soros probably once a month. And I, uh, I'm going to do, like, a deep dive into Soros conspiracy theories. I'm just waiting for the right time. Like, I want I, I don't know exactly what I'm waiting for, but I know it's going to come. He's going to give me something to work with. I'm sure. <laughs> oh my god. Okay. Like, people who name drop George Soros also like to talk about how the Jews should not continue to be around. Yeah. So, it, I really don't like that Tucker's doing it on cable news. Yeah, it, it's it's all anti-Semitic shit. It's yeah. same as like the Rothschilds and the... Ugh. They own the banks. Fuck off. Oh boy. Result? The city is now on pace to far exceed its murder rate from 30 years ago. 1990 was the previous high. They're about to beat it. So what happens when prosecutors do enforce the law and use it to target the people committing crimes? Well, that's the way the country used to work. And by the way, it works. And we have new academic research tonight to show that. Researchers at the University of Pennsylvania and Princeton found that gang takedowns by cops explain nearly a quarter of all reduction in so-called gun violence in housing projects in New York City after 2011. In other words, you go after the people you know are committing the crimes, and then you've got a lot less crime. The gangs are committing the crimes in these cities, particularly in Chicago. So if Joe Biden was serious about protecting children from being murdered on the street or people at the Puerto Rican Day Parade from getting killed next to their car, he would go after the gangs. Okay, everyone knows already, except for Tucker, apparently, that if you just police crime more, it doesn't make crime go down. You have to address the cause of the crime and not the symptom of the crime. Yes. Yeah. uh, It's so simple. Oh, my God. (laughs) Broken windows policing has not worked. Um, Ever. It's never worked. (laughs) And... It, it, but I, I could be wrong, but I think that people, it like looks like it works. It makes people feel like it's working because there's yeah. more police or whatever. Yeah, certain people who aren't afraid of the police. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so makes white people feel like it's working. Yeah. That, uh, more that, accurate. That study that he mentioned um, about gang takedowns reducing crime more than anything. That this is interesting. I read that study he's talking about. And as usual, it kind of draws the opposite conclusion that Tucker is drawing. Interesting. <laughs> so, Interesting how that works. Uh, it's called, Can Precision Policing Reduce Gun Violence? Evidence from Gang Takedowns in New York City. This is from the abstract. During the last decade, while national homicide rates have remained flat, New York City has experienced a second great crime decline, with gun violence declining by more than 50% since 2011. 
In this paper, we investigate one potential explanation for this dramatic and unexpected improvement in public safety. The New York Police Department's shift to, more sur- to a more surgical form of precision policing, in which law enforcement focuses resources on a small number of individuals who are thought to be the primary drivers of violence. We study New York City's campaign of gang takedowns, in which suspected members of criminal gangs were arrested in highly coordinated raids and prosecuted by conspiracy charges. We show that gun violence in and around public housing communities fell by approximately one-third in the first year after a gang takedown. Our estimates imply that gang takedowns explain nearly one-quarter of the declining gun violence in New York City's public housing communities over the last eight years. So what they're talking about that worked, that reduced violence so much, is precision policing, where police resources were dedicated towards specific high-profile targets. (laughs) Not just having more cops on the street to stop and harass people. It's ridiculous. Like, yep. it, he just, he just reads the study and says the opposite. It's, it's, it drives me insane. I feel bad for our audience a little bit that half of this episode is me groaning. So, <laughs> yeah, there's going to be a lot of that. Like, I, I I thought about covering the Britney Spears stuff because like we need some levity in here, but even that wasn't really fun. Yeah, it's kind of sad. <laughs> yeah. Um. If, okay, since we're not going to talk about it, if you haven't looked into it. Um, I thought that it was stupid and bullshit at first, but it's actually serious and bad. Yeah, no, it's so, like, it's, like a, it's, it's a deeply fucked up situation. People yeah, should care about it. Yeah, str- uh, strongly recommend you read into it until maybe we cover it eventually. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're we're going to get away from crime for a little bit, because at this point, Tucker has a, uh, a hot new development on the lab leak front. Again? Again with the lab leak thing? I, I know, but it's... <laughs> I wouldn't cover it if it wasn't important. I know. <laughs> there are rumors said, including rumors circulating in China, that that country's vice minister of state security, a man called Dong Xinwei, has defected to the United States, came in mid-February with his daughter. Apparently, the reports say, Dong Xinwei supplied the U.S. with information about the Wuhan Institute of Virology and the true origins of coronavirus. Is this story true? And if it is, what does it mean? So it's not true. Shocker. Uh, he's talking about there was a there, there were rumors that a um, a defector from the Chinese government had come to the U.S. and was giving in, giving info to the Biden administration about the origins of the pandemic. This defector was later identified as Dong Jingwei, who was uh, a Chinese defense minister. This all started on June 4th, when a man named Adam Housley, a former Fox News reporter turned winemaker, tweeted, U.S. intelligence has a Chinese defector with Wuhan info, and China is trying to produce variants that suggest it came from bats to cover up that coronavirus originally came from a lab. A week later, a right-wing blog called The Red State picked up the story, with the headline, Defector provides evidence that the Chinese military orchestrated the creation of COVID-19 in lab leak. It got picked up by a few other outlets from there and spread on social media. Leading up to June 17th, when a, well, a well-respected intelligence newsletter called Spy Talk named the supposed defector as, Chinese, as China's vice minister of security, Dong Jinwei. By June 23rd, though, Spy Talk was reporting that the story was in fact false. Uh, on June 24th, a photo was released of Dong Jingwei alive and well in China at a meeting at, at a meeting of China's Security Council secretaries, which occurred the day before. Pretty, defi- pretty definitively putting a pin in this story. <laughs> so, he, someone claimed he defected and he didn't? Yeah, no, he he's still 
in China, he's still in his role, like, conducting his duties. Okay. I, I don't know exactly why he got pinged as this imaginary defector, but it it was pretty quickly like, oh, no, that was wrong. Okay. Um, so, which, like, a bureaucratic error, sounds like, <laughs> or something. Yeah, which I guess leaves open the possibility that it was misidentified and there is a different defector, but I... Until I, we have evidence of that. Yeah. So, to talk about the implications of this fake story... Tucker brings in one of his go-to China hawks, Gordon Chang. Pay attention to where this conversation goes. Gordon Chang is a senior fellow at the Gatestone Institute. He's the author of The Great U.S.-China Tech War. We're happy to have him with us tonight. Gordon, thanks for coming on. Is this story true, do you think? I think that it is. Beijing says it isn't. And matter of fact, Beijing's uh, Beijing Daily and Hong Kong's South China Morning Post have issued stories that Dong is busy at work discharging his his obligations. But I don't believe that. And the reason is that China has every reason in the world to parade this guy in front of the cameras. That would squelch all sorts of rumors that are damaging to the regime. Now, China hasn't done that. And that, to me, says that we have him and that he, in fact, defected. So one of the reasons that this seems true to me is that the great American propaganda machine, the liars in charge of managing the lies that we receive and consume unthinkingly, in one week changed their official story on where the virus came from. And all of a sudden they were, oh, well, I guess it did come from a lab. And that suggested to me that there was some person who had unimpeachable information on this who would contradict the official lie. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So for those of We're us here pay- now, <laughs> for those of us paying attention, this is a fun little moment to see how Tucker works. A couple of weeks ago, he just decided that the mainstream media had all admitted that COVID came from a lab, when that didn't actually happen. What had happened was the outlets were reporting it was possible, and Tucker sees something. He's like, "See, they're all admitting it now." And so now that Tucker has decided that they all changed their tune and said, "Oh yes, it did come from a lab," and he's just living in that fake little reality now. He can pluck different little pieces of news and fit them into his narrative. Like, oh, well, I, I think this story is true because, uh, for some reason, over one week, the news outlets all changed their tune and said this did come from a lab. And so it's like, he can use that to, to myth-build the, into these other narratives, and, like, the basis is bullshit. They didn't do that. Yeah. Trying not to groan again. I really <laughs> want to. And you'll remember, when we talked about this a couple of weeks back, that I said... Now that Tucker had decided that lab leak was unequivocally true, he was going to shift into narratives about it being a bioweapon. Well? Yes, and, and clearly what we have right now is a change of heart on some people, of some people in the Biden administration. Now, it could be due to various things, could be due to political pressure, for instance, but I think that they have now gotten evidence that indeed uh, this was a leak from the Wuhan Institute of Virology, and perhaps as important, that the Chinese military was working in the lab itself, and that suggests a biological weapons program. So the, the Chinese scientists we've interviewed a couple of times on this show, and we kind of de-emphasize this because I don't know what to make of it, but said unequivocally she was in Wuhan when this happened. She believed this was released as a bioweapon intentionally. I hate almost to say that because it's such a radical thing to say, but I have to ask, how do you assess that claim? Well, it's possible, but I think that it's unlikely. And the reason is that China didn't have the vaccine. 
So, um, you know, there are people who have said, well, they wanted to see the effect of the coronavirus on the population and they thought they could contain it. Um, and, you know, that's possible. And matter of fact, a lot of Chinese nationals do believe that it was an intentional release. It's the foreigners who think that this was accidental. Um, I, I believe it probably was a mistake and that China was not able to contain it. Yeah, I mean, I, you've got to think that as an American, it's just too hard to get into my head the, the evil required to do it on purpose. But it's interesting that they think that. Gordon Chang, I appreciate you coming on tonight. Thanks for that amazing story. That was an interesting little thing that he just said. Yeah. As an American, it's hard for me to imagine all this communist evil. Is that... Pretty that's much, kind yeah. of the impression I'm yeah. getting. Kind of reminded me of Bill O'Reilly on the phone with his mother. Like, you just don't understand the evil of these people, Mom. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But no, uh, I think at this point, Tucker is still deciding whether or not he wants to embrace the bioweapon narrative. He's flirting with it. He isn't sure yet. Because he's definitely leaving the door open, but he hasn't gone whole hog. So then, at this point... Uh, okay, so Tucker believes that Google was funding the, the lab at Wuhan. That's just because Google gave grant money to the EcoHealth Alliance, which then gave grant money to the Wuhan lab. Um, same as Fauci. Like Whenever he says that somebody was funding Wuhan, it's usually because they donated EcoHealth Alliance. Okay. Um, but all this leads Tucker to start asking questions about this whole science thing. <laughs> but in the meantime, as we await the indictments we fervently hope are coming, the whole ugly story makes you wonder bigger things. For example... How many other dangerous, potentially world-altering experiments are going on right now in this and other countries, funded by the secretive daisy chain of government health agencies and powerful NGOs? Experiments you have never heard of, but that could change your life forever. If they can engineer bat viruses to make them more infectious and whoops, they escape from a lab, what else are they doing? You're not supposed to ask that question. You've been commanded to trust the science and get back to watching Netflix, plebe. Only Neanderthals ask questions. And honestly, that has been the arrangement in science for quite a while now. You pay for it. We do it. It's all good. But why should that continue? Now that we know that liars and moral pygmies, people like Tony Fauci and the soulless bots at Google HQ, are running global science, maybe it's worth being slightly more inquisitive about what's happening in labs around the world. Why not? It could affect us. God, it sounds so weird to, like, group Tony Fauci and Google executives, <laughs> yeah. I guess. Uh, moral, fig moral pygmy Tony Fauci <laughs> and the soulless robots at Google HQ. Because all my enemies fit in one basket. Yep. Um, well, they're all the other, Troy. <laughs> so, he's at this point, he's going to play a five-year-old video of a guy named Dr. Matthew Lau. Lau was a bioethicist, and he was speaking at this conference about human engineering technology, think like CRISPR. Okay. And he, he's talking about some of the ethical implications going forward. Tucker absolutely loses his shit over this video, which I remind you is five years old. For example, take a look at this tape. It's from an annual conference called the World Science Festival. A few years ago, the conference featured a professor of bioethics and philosophy at New York University called Matthew Lau. Lau is among the most influential bioethicists in the world, and that's a fact that will amaze you once you see this tape. Here is Lau explaining that climate change can be solved with something called human engineering. My view is that what we need is a really robust uh, uh, ethical framework. And 
with within this ethical uh, uh, robust ethical framework, we can. I think there's a way going forward we, where we can do this ethically. But there's actually a lot of opportunities for this to solve big world problems. So uh, one thing is the climate change. And there, uh, I'll just use, um, you know, sort of climate change is really big problem. We don't really know how to solve it. But it turns out that we can use human engineering to help us address climate change. Okay, here's a tip. Anyone who uses the phrase robust ethical framework wouldn't know ethics if they got in the shower with him. And you know that for a fact because he uses the phrase human engineering. Human engineering? The name alone should make you pause and take a deep breath. People are not bridge abutments. You can't just add rebar, pour a few yards of concrete, and improve the human condition, much less the human soul. People are living beings. They're alive. They can't be engineered. Lao, the eminent bioethicist, seems unaware of this. So I wish I could find the clip. A couple of months ago, he literally called Senator Kirsten Gillibrand a bridge abutment. <laughs> okay. Um... um. Uh, okay. Lau didn't say anything yet. <laughs> no, he, he just... said nothing, and Tucker's already <laughs> furious. <laughs> like, he, he, what did he get mad about there? He got mad about the phrase human engineering and a robust yeah. ethical framework. That's all yeah. he needed. For, for no reason. <laughs> he hasn't laid out what his ethical framework is or how in human engineering is going to help. Yeah, he's just upset about phrases he doesn't understand in this five-year-old video. It's It's ridiculous. Uh, um, yep. So then he's got a, he, he's going to get into some of his specific grievances with Matthew Lau. So we outlined some of his proposals in a recent paper in the Journal of Ethics, Policy, and Environment. In that paper, Lau suggests a solution to the problem, the pressing problem, of people eating hamburgers. People like hamburgers, it turns out. How can we get them to stop eating hamburgers? Well, not by convincing them that hamburgers are bad. That was the old way. That's how democracy worked. You would tell people something, and if they believed you, they did it. And if they didn't, they didn't, because it was their country. It was their government. It was self-government. But it turns out that's too time-consuming. The new model is we just use pharmaceuticals to make people comply. If your kids are getting uppity, dope them out, and they'll obey. And Lau proposes a nationwide system like that, a pill that would make people nauseous at the sight of red meat. Now, given that climate change is an existential threat, that is limiting our time on Earth to 20 years or 12 years or six months or pick your exaggeration. It's pretty hard to believe a pill like that would be optional. It would be mandatory pretty soon. Does that sound like a dystopian fantasy? Oh, it's not, because Lau is deadly serious. Watch him explain at the World Science Festival. So he, he's just writing fan fiction about a hypothetical. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like citation needed on that. And then if your children are uppity dope them up who has said that ever yeah i think he's just talking about like adhd and anxiety meds and shit okay because those things never existed before right obviously um <laughs> but yeah like this isn't something matthew Lau is seriously proposing it's like an example of how bioengineering can be used to handle climate change and like the thing with the burgers is like burgers are an extremely um carbon expensive i'm i'm going to <laughs> coin my own term there um food so if we could reduce the number of people that were interested in eating burgers that would be good for the environment and that's like not a radical idea yeah it as an as an on and off again vegetarian um, 
Like, I, I would rather there were no vegans and, and everybody just ate half as much meat. <laughs> like, that would be such a better benefit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then, like, it's a, like the, these ideas that Lao's talking about are fringe. They're also completely hypothetical. And Tucker's just, again, writing his own story about it. Like, oh, it's going to be mandatory soon. <laughs> yeah, like, citation needed on that, dog. <laughs> yeah. Um, this is the last clip of Dr. Lao. This is hands down my favorite. Oh, boy. So here's an idea, says Lao at the World Science Festival. Let's fiddle with the human genome to see if we can make human children smaller than they are now. A race of dwarfs! They would eat less, and they'd be cheaper to transport. And that would reduce greenhouse gases. So it turns out that the larger you are, think of the lifetime sort of greenhouse gas emissions that are required to sort of, the energy that's required to transport larger people rather than smaller people, right? Um, but if we're smaller, just by 15 centimeters, right? It, that's a mass, uh, you know, I did the math, and it's about mass reduction of 25%, which is huge. And 100 years ago, we we're all on the average smaller, about 50, exactly about 15 centimeters smaller, right? So think of just the, you know, like lifetime greenhouse gas emissions if we had smaller children, right? And so that's something that we could do. Imagine if we had smaller children, little tiny children. Think of how little they would emit in greenhouse gases. Think about how easy it would be to pick them up, juggle them around, control them. All we need to do is experiment on human children, and we can solve climate change. That was at a public conference five years ago. Nobody said anything. That's where we are. Surprised? You shouldn't be surprised. In fact, what you just heard is less ghoulish than some of the things happening in labs right now. This is what science looks like when it's been completely decoupled from wisdom and from decency and from Christianity. It is a science fiction novel come to life, except it's real. In fact, Google might be funding it right now. Okay, so I think I know what the problem is here. Tucker is an American, so he doesn't know how big centimeters are. Because <laughs> <laughs> basically what he's saying is like, what if people were six inches shorter? <laughs> Which isn't... <laughs> Like, I have friends who are six inches taller than me. It's, like, not a big deal. Also, conservatives are the ones in favor of, like, being uber-controlling of children. Like, they're all about, like, discipline and, you know. And just, like, I know I've said this, but th these these are not serious proposals. These are hypothetical examples of ways human engineering in the future could be used. Yeah. And, like, they're talking about a mass reduction. Like, what if we could tackle the obesity epidemic? That would probably right, that be... Would be... That would be a huge mass reduction. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. And, and I think it's important there that this is what science looks like when it's divorced from Christianity. Again, they're like, Tucker, his ideal mode for a society to function is based off of an uh, old fucking book. Yeah. Um, at this point, we're going to get into the NSA stuff. Oh boy! So, here, uh, here is how Tucker introduces this on the twenty fifth for the first time. Or, I'm sorry, it's the twenty eighth. But it's not just political protesters the government is spying on. Yesterday, we heard from a whistleblower within the U.S. government who reached out to warn us that the NSA, the National Security Agency, is monitoring our electronic communications and is planning to leak them in an attempt to take the show off the air. Now, that's a shocking claim, and ordinarily we'd be skeptical of it. It's illegal for the NSA to spy on American citizens. It's a crime. It's not a third world country. Things like that should not happen in America. But unfortunately, they do happen, and in this case, they did happen. 
The whistleblower, who is in a position to know, repeated back to us information about a story that we are working on that could have only come directly from my texts and emails. There's no other possible source for that information, period. The NSA captured that information without our knowledge and did it for political reasons. The Biden administration is spying on us. We have confirmed that. This morning we filed a FOIA request, a Freedom of Information Act request, asking for all information that the NSA and other agencies have gathered about this show. We did it mostly as a formality. We've also contacted the press office at both NSA and the FBI. We don't expect to hear much back. That's the way that usually goes. Only Congress can force transparency on the intelligence agencies, and they should do that immediately. Spying on opposition journalists is incompatible with democracy. If they are doing it to us, and again, they are definitely doing it to us, they are almost certainly doing it to others. This is scary, and we need to stop it right away. Can you spy on a journalist? Like, they're putting their work out for everyone to read. That's not spying. We're actually going to talk a little about that. Okay. Also, is it true that the NSA can't spy on citizens? Because I kind of thought that was NSA's whole thing. Um, it, it is technically illegal, but as we know, they do it all the goddamn time. There are plenty of loopholes they can exploit. Okay. Um, now, I want to say up front... If this is true, I am opposed to that. Yeah. But this immediately feels dubious because of the mouth it's coming out of. Uh, True. And and also interesting is that Fox News didn't report on it at all. Like, no other Fox News show or host mentioned this at all. (laughs) Yeah. So, Tucker... Here's the thing. Tucker knows that this kind of thing is going to get a lot of attention. He's essentially accusing the Biden administration of a crime for which he is personally the victim. That's going to light Twitter up. When he throws a bomb like that, it's important to think about why he's throwing it. If we assume at the start of this that the story is bullshit and Tucker knows it's bullshit, then why does he want people focusing on this? Is he trying to distract from that story about him being a confidential source? I've seen that allegation. It doesn't feel right to me. Is Is there something else he's distracting from, or is he trying to defang something negative about him that is going to come out? My, my personal theory, it, I, I saw reporting recently he was telling people he voted for Kanye and not Trump. I don't think that's what it is. But <laughs> that would be so funny. Oh, my God. No, so that, that, was, that was kind of my thinking going into this. And my thinking has evolved. I have some opinions on this. Um, I'm, I'm going to let this play out a little bit before I get into what I think is going on here. But I, I wanna, I'll, I'll just say I think Tucker is full of shit, but maybe less full of shit than normal. Okay. Um, uh, my my thing is, it's kind of unfalsifiable to say that the NSA is spying on you because unless they are and they release their information, which would be bad. NSA spying on citizens is generally bad. Um, but if they aren't, then they would say we don't have anything to give you because we're not spying on you. And then he would say, "Well, they're just not telling me because." Yeah. It's a secret. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so the next day he revisits, he, re- he revisits the story. By then, people have been talking about it. Uh, on Air Force One, a journalist asked Press Secretary Jen Psaki about the matter, and Tucker plays her response. Last night, we told you about the Biden administration's efforts to monitor and intimidate this show. On Sunday, we heard from a whistleblower within the U.S. government, someone with direct knowledge, 
who warned us that the NSA was reading our electronic communications, our emails and texts, and was planning to leak them selectively in an effort to hurt us. This person had details from my emails that no one outside the recipient could have known. So it was not a delusion. It was entirely real. In fact, it was confirmed. After the show last night, after we announced this, other news organizations acted as if it's totally normal for heavily politicized intel agencies to spy on and threaten journalists they disagree with. It's no big deal. Stop whining. But it is a big deal. It is completely wrong, not to mention illegally. And this is far, hardly the first time the so-called intelligence community has done something like this. They've done an awful lot of it. Look it up. If we let them continue to do it, it's the end of democracy. Democracy can't function with semi-independent, highly politicized intel agencies. It's really dangerous. For its part, the Biden administration just ignored the story. They did not deny the story. They can't. They know that it's true. Today, the president's flack was asked about it on Air Force One. Here's the exchange. Tucker Carlson said that the NSA is spying on him. Is the administration aware of any or listening efforts on U.S. citizens by the NSA, and is Tucker Carlson one of them? Uh, well, the NSA, as I think you're well aware, I'm sure everyone's aware, uh, everyone on this plane is aware, I should say, uh, is an entity that focuses on foreign threats and individuals uh, who are try attempting to do us harm on foreign soil. So uh, that is the their uh, purview. Um, but uh, beyond that, I would point you to the intelligence community. <laughs> It's like she's reading the Wikipedia entry. Ask them. But here's what to notice. No denial. Of course, she's right that the NSA is chartered to spy on foreigners, not on Americans. That's illegal. And yet the NSA does routinely spy on Americans. It won't call it spying. That's exactly what it is. Millions of Americans. And sometimes it does it for political reasons. And everyone knows this. Everyone, including sitting members of the Intel Committee. Some of them are paranoid about their own communications. That's true. So something that stuck out to me early on in that, um, first it was they're spying on me, then it's they're spying on me and threatening me. Yeah. Um, a threat is something you could easily provide evidence for if it had actually happened. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> his, his narrative is that whatever they have, they're planning to leak to uh, get his show taken off the air. Which implies that he said something and would get his show taken off the air, but... <laughs> As we have seen, yeah, it, uh, he can say anything he wants and yeah, nothing will know, get his show. I can't imagine what would get him off the air at this point. He would have to, like, show his dick. Seriously, like... <laughs> even then, like, I have a hard time imagining that. And I I agree that Jen Sackett's denial felt a little canned, right? It was basically just... Oh, the NSA only spies on foreign adversaries. Well, we know that's not true. We've known that's not true for a decade. Yeah. Um, Edward Snowden is still in Russia, I think. <laughs> and then uh, the same day, the NSA also released an official statement in response to Tucker's allegations. In Washington, this is just considered fine, but it's not fine. It is dangerous and it's wrong. Some faceless hack and a powerful government spy agency decides he doesn't like what you think, so he's going to hurt you and there's nothing you can do about it. That could happen to you. And when it does happen, trust us. NBC News will call you a delusional QAnon conspiracy theorist for complaining about it. Well, this morning we decided to just call Paul Nakasone directly. He's the highly political left-wing four-star general who runs the NSA. The receptionist refused to put us through. We're American citizens, though, so we kept trying, because it's our right. This afternoon we got his direct line, and we tried again. Nakasone's assistant seems shocked that someone whose email the NSA is reading would dare to call the director himself. 
Shut up, surf, obey. So they told us Nakasone just wasn't there. Then, just minutes before air tonight, the NSA sent us an infuriatingly dishonest formal statement. And it- I, I just want to say before he gets into the statement, uh, he, he's he's a good storyteller. I mean, not a great one, but good enough in the way that like what happened was they called Nakasone's office and they said he wasn't available. And Tucker turned that into they couldn't believe that we would dare to question them. And shut up, sir. Like, yeah, just, putting a lot of words in their mouth. Yeah dishonest formal statement, an entire paragraph of lies written purely for the benefit of the intel community's lackeys at CNN and MSNBC, all those people they hire with the titles on the screen. They also tweeted it out a few minutes ago. Now, last night on the show, we made a very straightforward claim. NSA has read my private emails without my permission, period. That's what we said. Tonight's statement from the NSA does not deny that. Instead, It comes with this non sequitur, in part, quote, Tucker Carlson has never been an intelligence target of the agency. Okay, glad to know. But the question remains, did the Biden administration read my personal emails? That's the question that we asked directly to NSA officials when we spoke to them about 20 minutes ago in a very heated conversation. Did you read my emails? And again, they refused to say again and again. And then they refused even to explain why they couldn't answer that simple question. We can't tell you and we won't tell you why we can't tell you. My emails. So here's the official statement that the NSA put out. On June 28th, 2021, Tucker Carlson alleged that the National Security Agency has been, quote, monitoring our electronic communications and is planning to leak them in, att- in an attempt to take the show off the air. This allegation is untrue. Tucker Carlson has never been an intelligence target of the agency, and the NSA has never had any plans to try and take his program off the air. NSA has a foreign intelligence mission. We target foreign powers to generate insights on foreign activities that could harm the United States. With limited exceptions, ergo an emergency, NSA may not target a U.S. citizen without a court order that explicitly authorizes the targeting. So... After hearing Saki's answer and reading the NSA statement, I will admit that it seems like they're leading themselves some wiggle room. They didn't directly address this question. The statement did forcefully say that they had never planned to take Tucker Carlson off the air, but they didn't deny that they had read his emails, so I started digging around a little to see if there might be anything there. A lot of the information I'm about to go through comes from a tech journalist named Lucas Ropek, who's done some really good work on this. The specifics of what Tucker Carlson is alleging that the NSA is trying to get him cancelled would be very unusual. However, if they had intercepted some of his communications, that's not totally outside the realm of plausibility. Just last month, there were confirmed reports that the Trump Department of Justice used NSA products to spy on journalists, as well as members of Congress and their staff. The Trump DOJ had secretly subpoenaed their phone records and emails in an effort to track down leakers. Just a week ago, there were hearings held by the House Committee on the Judiciary about the government's use of secrecy orders, the legal protocol that allows law enforcement agencies to subpoena data records on a target without notifying them. These orders are typically rubber-stamped by federal courts. At the hearing, a representative from Microsoft named Tom Burt testified that Microsoft has, in recent years, received thousands of requests for information on users of Microsoft products, and estimated that a third of those requests include secrecy orders. Here's a quote from Burt at that hearing. I want to be clear, the overuse and abuse of secrecy orders is not new, and in fact it has remained an ongoing problem since the ascendancy of cloud computing. It is not unique to one administration or political party. 
and it is certainly not limited to investigations targeting the media and Congress, said Burt. They are often approved even for routine investigations without any meaningful analysis of, e- of either the need for secrecy or the order's compliance with fundamental constitutional rights. And he's right. This was not just a Trump problem. The Obama administration, for example, subpoenaed the phone records of reporters for both Fox News and the Associated Press in an effort to track down leakers. Obama's CIA illegally spied on Senate Intelligence Committee staffers while they were investigating the CIA's torture program. An oversight of any of this is lacking. The Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, or PCLOB, which is my new favorite acronym, <laughs> uh, describes itself as a watchdog for this kind of thing. PCLOB spent over five years investigating an NSA product called XKeyscore, which is basically a, a Google-like function that allows the agency to search through pretty much anybody's emails, web browsing data, social media activity, and associated metadata. When the existence of the XKeyscore program was first made public almost a decade ago, searches were, were performed without the need for a court order and only a slim paper trail existed to record its intrusions. PCLOB was commissioned to review the program, but their report on it, to use a technical term, sucks. <laughs> it sucks super hard. Travis LeBlanc, a member of the board, published a critique where he complained that the PCLOB report was only focused on how the XKeyscore tool worked and not how the NSA was actually using it which he said made their investigation more like a book report than a meaningful audit. He also complains that the report is classified, and therefore of no use to the public, and that the board made no effort to seek declassification. Furthermore, evidence of potential abuses of the tool was apparently uncovered during the investigation, but the board chose not to follow up on that evidence. So the point I'm making is, everyone in America, not just Tucker Carlson, should be concerned about the state of the surveillance apparatus in the United States. These agencies are essentially self-policing, have massive surveillance powers at their disposal, and no meaningful oversight whatsoever. And when Tucker freaks out about the NSA, it's tempting for us to do a 180 and take the NSA's denial at face value. But I think that's dangerous. We need to remember that the NSA is not our friend, the FBI is not our friend, the CIA is not our friend. So with all that said, here's what I think is going on with Tucker Carlson and the NSA. I think that Tucker is lying about the NSA's motives. But I think that they probably did intercept some of his communications, as a result of him being an incidental person. If the NSA has active surveillance on a foreign individual, then any communications that American citizens have with those individuals can be scooped up in surveillance as well. Okay. Uh, So if Tucker was communicating with a foreign surveillance target, he could have become an incidental person, and those communications could have been intercepted. We know that very recently, Tucker interviewed the president of El Salvador, which very well could have been the focal point for this surveillance. There are other possibilities, too. He's been in communication with a couple of different Chinese scientists, including a defector from China named Lei Minyan, who we're going to talk about in a little bit. Uh, He was recently speaking with the brother and father of Julian Assange, um, so his upcoming story could have been trying to get an interview with Assange or something. Mm -hmm. Um, There are a number of possibilities for times he could have been communicating with foreign surveillance targets. And if if he did then those communications could have led to his emails getting caught up in NSA surveillance. Yeah, if Assange isn't a target of the NSA, I would be surprised. Oh, I would like, be shocked. <laughs> like, and he said it's an upcoming story, so I'm willing to bet. Because he, he's done a couple interviews with people tangentially related to Assange. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they were trying to do an interview with him for Tucker Carlson today or something. All right, yeah, because that's normal. <laughs> 
So part of the reason that I think this is likely is that it fits a pattern of Tucker's behavior where he takes something banal that happened to him and spins it into an attack. Just last week we were talking about the time that demonstrators showed up outside Tucker's house and he pretended that they had broken down his door and threatened him with a pipe bomb, which was all bullshit. Yes. Um, in episode four of this show, we also talked about a time when the New York, some New York Times reporters were doing a puff piece on the town he lived in, and he spun that into you. They were doing a story about where his house was and doxed the reporters. <sighs> yeah. So it totally fits that Tucker got word that some of his communications were swept up in NSA surveillance. And then he turns around and spins that on his show as the Biden administration is trying to take me off the air. And he has nothing to lose. If no evidence for this claim ever comes out, he can just keep saying that they're hiding the truth. But if evidence does come out that the NSA did collect some of his emails as a result of him interacting with a foreign surveillance target, that's a huge win for him. He can run a marathon with that shit. He'll milk it for all it's worth and then some. The media all made fun of me, and I was right. So, th that's what I think is probably going on here. I, I could be wrong, but I, th that's, where my, that's where my money is. Alright, I mean, I'll buy it. It seems reasonable enough to me. So in this next clip, we're going to see Tucker spin this yarn a little bit further, and I think what he starts doing here is important from a narrative standpoint. And the message was clear. We can do whatever we want. We can read your personal texts. We can read your personal emails. We can send veiled threats your way to brush you back if we don't like your politics. We can do anything. We're our own country, and there's literally nothing you can do about it. We're in charge. You're not. Orwellian does not begin to describe the experience. It was like living in China. But we should get used to it. Now that the Biden administration has classified tens of millions of patriotic Americans, the kind who served in the military and fly flags in front of their homes, as potential domestic terrorists, white supremacist saboteurs, we're going to see a whole lot more of this kind of thing. A whole lot more. People who serve in the military and don't acknowledge the existence of white supremacy <laughs> very specifically yeah he and now just like that he's connected this story to the other idea that he keeps pushing that the biden administration considers trump voters domestic terrorists the implication well, some of them <laughs> yeah, yeah at least 400 of them yeah um the implication here of course is they're watching you too this is patriot community myth making in the works the Biden administration is spying on innocent Americans, real Americans, the kind who fly flags in their yard and love guns. And Tucker, a figurehead of the movement, is using his platform to fight against it. He's calling them out in the air and daring them to deny it. And he's doing it for you. I'm not blowing this out of proportion. He's going to revisit this idea a bunch. And that's because he knows it's going to play with his viewers. The government is against you. I'm for you. Here's the proof. So... He, uh, he interviews somebody named Harmeet Dillon. She's a lawyer and a Republican Party official, though in this interview she describes herself as a civil libertarian. Um, she lends a little bit of credence to my theory about what I think is happening here. Well, you should be able to find out, Tucker, and the reason I said I'm not surprised is for the last 20 years since 9-11, I and other civil libertarians have been screaming about the Patriot Act and other laws, but dating back to 1947, our securities laws have said that the spying may only be on foreigners, not on American citizens, yes. but our government regularly flouts that. I mean, you know, we have the example of James Clapper lying to Congress about spying on American citizens and gathering millions of 
pieces of data, phone call records and all of that. And so when you ask why, well, of course, it's about this military industrial complex, the security industrial complex, and they justify the spying on Americans in the name of we're really focusing on foreigners and the American data that we scoop up, they call that incidental. So I suspect if you're able, because you are a person with a lot of connections and this is a good platform, if you are able to find out more information about this, I think what you're going to find is that uh, you are being described as incidental. So the gathering of your information is going to be because they're really focusing on somebody else. And if that's okay, if it is the case that the NSA picked up some of Tucker's emails in investigation of other people, they can't say that, right? Because right. that would undermine their investigation of the people that Tucker was emailing. Yeah. Yeah, so this is, like, completely soundproof. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he, uh, he, he's, he's got a golden egg here. Uh, yeah, for real. And then uh, Tucker doubles down on the narrative thread we were just talking about that he's concerned about the surveillance of ordinary Americans. And then he's got three questions for the NSA. Look, I'm not, I mean, I'm just... I hate even to be put in a position where I have to say this. I'm actually not doing anything wrong, so it's not like and if I was, it would be on the front page of the New York Times, you can be sure. But my concern is that this will be used against tens of millions of Americans who have no power whatsoever and are being reclassified as white supremacists, and therefore they're terrorists, and they're going to bear the brunt of this kind of treatment. So here are the questions that we have for the NSA, and we're going to keep pressing them on behalf of a lot of people who are going to face this kind of treatment but have no recourse. Here's the first. Does the NSA have any surveillance product on me or our producers? Two, who authorized the retention of that product? These are all terms of art. The intel community will understand what they mean. And here's the last one. What were the minimization procedures for U.S. citizens and journalists in this case? Yes, yeah, so it, we can talk about his questions there. But I think what I think is most important, he said, I'm asking these questions on behalf of ordinary Americans who are going to bear the brunt of this. Yes, ordinary Americans who are regularly in contact with foreign officials. <laughs> yeah. All of one of you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, this is his, it's all about you, the patriots, and I'm on your side against the government because they want to surveil you too. I think that's the most important thing he's doing here, honestly. Like, it's, it's like I said, patriot myth-making. Yeah. Um... As far as those, as far as those questions he asked, the most important thing there is what are the minimization procedures? Because there are supposed to be procedures to protect the privacy of American citizens caught up in these kinds of dragnets. So he's asking, um, what were those procedures in this case? Which tells me again, like not telling you that you're being investigated. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah which uh, which tells me again that this, that's probably what's happening, and he probably knows that's what's happening. Yeah. So then he. From here, he pivots away from the NSA story for a little bit to focus on some YouTube drama. Ooh, fun. Well, speaking of civil liberties, the tech monopoly YouTube, part of Google, has just censored one of the most popular podcasts in the country. Why did they do that? Well, the podcast mentioned a drug that Silicon Valley does not want the public to hear about. The host of that podcast, who's not a right winger, by the way, joins us next. Okay, do you know what this is about? I don't. Okay, so... Have you ever heard of Brett Weinstein? It sounds familiar. I must have, right? Yeah, he uh, he's a member of the Intellectual Dark Web. So those, okay, those I, fine fellows. I have heard of... I am familiar with several Intellectual <laughs> Dark Webbers, so... I haven't looked into him too deeply just because of time constraints, but uh, I do know that he used to be a professor at Evergreen College, 
And he he left kind of under duress because he wrote a letter condemning the college's day of absence. So what this was traditionally, um, there was a day out of the year where students and faculty of color would voluntarily be absent from the campus to kind of highlight their contributions. Okay. Evergreen, a couple of years ago, proposed a change to the day of absence where uh, they, they, they would recommend that white students and faculty be off-site where they would undergo some, like, uh, cultural sensitivity training. And it was optional. Nobody was forcing them to do this. It was just a proposed change to the day of absence. Okay. Um, Brett Weinstein wrote a letter condemning this as oppression of white people. Uh, yes. Op- <laughs> optional activities are oppressing me. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Um, Makes sense. And this led to some, uh, that and some other things that are happening in the college led to some protests. Brett Weinstein was told by campus security it wasn't safe for him to be there, and he quit. Since then, he and his wife have done the Dark Horse podcast on YouTube, which I'd never heard of before, but it's actually pretty big. Uh, I also haven't heard of it, so. It's, it's number 51 on the podcast insight charts, so like a lot of people are listening to this. All right. Weinstein positions himself as an enlightened centrist type. Oh, boy. <laughs> but a quick look at his Twitter feed reveals reveals exactly what you'd expect. There's all the traditional anti-BLM stuff and anti-trans hallmarks, and also a whole bunch of anti-vax bullshit. Okay, so he's a centrist in the sense that the center is not the center, but <laughs> as far right as you can go. Yep. Um, okay. <laughs> on a recent episode of the Dark Horse podcast, he brought out a guy named Dr. Geert Vandenbosch, who Weinstein billed as a, vir- as a virologist and a credentialed scientist. So if you look into Dr. Vandenbosch, he is only board certified as a veterinary virologist. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, I'll, I'll link uh, a really exhaustive takedown of Dr. Van der, Dr. Vandenbosch by a guy named Dr. Vincent Lannell. It's, it's a really good article, but it's not the point of what we're talking about here. But Vandenbosch, being a veterinary virologist, might be the reason he was on board with Brett Weinstein's endorsement of a drug called Ivermectin. Weinstein has been all about ivermectin as a treatment for COVID-19. Ivermectin is primarily used as a horse dewormer. It's occasionally used in humans to treat certain parasitic infections. In another recent episode of the Dark Horse podcast, Weinstein and his wife took ivermectin on camera while explaining that they will not take the COVID vaccine due to concerns over its safety. Okay. Interesting. (laughs) Part of the reason that YouTube demonetized his show is that the CDC has reported multiple instances of people taking large doses of veterinary ivermectin and winding up severely injured in the hospital. Wow, taking something meant for horses <laughs> could have negative effects on my body? Yeah, and I'll just say this at the very top because it's important. Ivermectin is only safe for humans in very controlled doses um, for a select set of ailments. And can be very dangerous or even deadly if taken without medical supervision. So don't fucking take ivermectin. How did they get their hands on this? Like, yeah, I, it, is it just available over the counter for horses or something? Yeah, honestly, like my, my wife, her family has horses. They have some ivermectin on hand. Huh. Okay. So I guess. And I'll I'll have a bit more to say about ivermectin in a second. But let's hear how Tucker lets Weinstein talk about this on his show. But thanks so much for coming on. So. What, tell us, what, I, I mean, I think those, those are the bare bones of the story. Tell us what you think this means and why Google would be opposed to talking about ivermectin. It's confusing in some ways. It is confusing, but I think to understand it, the thing to do is to consider the question of what would be ideal from the perspective of the pharmaceutical industry at the moment. It would be ideal 
if vaccines were recommended for all people, irrespective of their age, irrespective of whether they had already had COVID-19, and irrespective of whether or not they were pregnant. And it would be essential that there were no safe and effective alternatives to the vaccine, because if there were safe and effective alternatives, the emergency use authorizations that allow the administration of the vaccines would evaporate. So I think ultimately, that is at the root. And what we see is that all of those things that I've called ideal and essential are in fact the position, the official position of the CDC, which the tech sector has encoded as their censorship policy on the social media platforms. It's just horrifying. And it, it, was, it was particularly striking since, I mean, you spent your life in science. You're a professor of science, of hard science too, not sociology. So you have concluded from watching carefully in your experience that this really is being driven by the pharma companies. You hate to think that. Well, it's a little hard to say. I can say that that is the only hypothesis I have heard that explains our current position on who should be vaccinated and what treatments should be administered. At the moment, it is not acknowledged that we have drugs that work on COVID-19, and so they're not being administered. And that is a medical abomination. The fact is, even if the skeptics were right, and they are not, the evidence is strong that ivermectin works both as a prophylactic and as a treatment if given early. But even if the skeptics were right and the data was inconclusive, because ivermectin is a safe drug, you would still administer it to people who showed up with COVID rather than sending them home until they're so sick that they need to be rescued That's by right. a hospital. That's exactly right. And, and of course, all kinds of early treatments are prescribed around the world, including in China, where hydroxychloroquine is a very common therapeutic for COVID. The, it, last question, is this country one of the only countries where that's not true, or we just wait until people get so sick that they have to be intubated or hospitalized? No, actually, there's a, a battle around the world. And uh, what we've seen is that local authorities have sometimes overridden national authorities to good effect. And they have distributed ivermectin and they have actually ended waves of the pandemic. And unfortunately, what we're seeing here is that the United States is going to be once again late to the solution with respect to the issues of COVID because the hegemony of the pharmaceutical industry and its capture of our public health uh, agencies seems to be so thorough. It's just terrifying. If they can censor you, we're, we're in trouble for real. Brett Weinstein, I appreciate you coming on tonight. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay, Brett. What if, maybe, they're using the vaccines because they are safer and more effective than your horse medicine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, he, he's just lying about places around the world using ivermectin to end the pandemic. Like, I could find no instances of that. And, like, this reminds me of the, the crime thing from earlier. Like, it sounds to me like those drugs are used to treat it once you already got infected with it and yeah. not prevent you from getting it in the first place. Yes. Uh, also they seem obsessed with, like, attacking the symptoms instead of the cause. And yeah. it's stupid and ineffective, and I hate it. I interrupted you. <laughs> yeah, no, you're good. Uh, I've been talking way too much this episode. Um, also, Tucker is a hydroxychloroquine guy, apparently. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, so, ivermectin. I mentioned already that it can be dangerous, but it also doesn't work to treat COVID. Ivermectin has been having a moment in anti-vax and vaccine-hesitant communities recently because of a study that implies it is effective at treating COVID-19, which has been making the rounds now that's like the Epic Times. 
The study was originally published in the American Journal of Therapeutics on June 17th. It performed a systemic review and meta-analysis of various trials that tested ivermectin as a possible treatment for the virus, and drew the following conclusion, quote, Moderate certainty evidence finds that large reductions in COVID-19 deaths are possible using ivermectin. Using ivermectin early in the clinical course may reduce numbers progressing to severe disease. The apparent safety and low cost suggests that ivermectin is likely to have a significant impact on the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic globally. Health professionals should strongly consider its use, both in treatment and prevention. So, a glowing review, right? Um, But there are some problems with that particular study. Okay. For one, the studies upon which the meta-analysis were performed were not high quality. Some of them were not even peer-reviewed. Dr. Amesh Adalia at Johns Hopkins University said, quote, The study is a meta-analysis whose strength is dependent on the underlying studies that comprise it. In general, most of the ivermectin studies that purport to show a positive benefit are of low quality and have potential sources of bias. Dr. David Gorski, a professor at Wayne State University, was more scathing in his review. Quote, Pooling data from a large number of small, low-quality clinical trials does not magically create one large, high-quality clinical trial. Makes sense. Yeah. The few existing higher-quality clinical trials testing ivermectin against the disease uniformly have failed to find a positive result. That's a good indication that the drug probably doesn't work. Okay. Reasons (laughs) that the CDC doesn't support ivermectin. It doesn't work. And it can kill you. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I mentioned that the study showing positive results of of ivermectin had some potential sources of bias. The researchers for that study, despite claiming to have no conflicts of interest, are affiliated with an organization called BIRD, or British Ivermectin Recommendation Development Group. Oh my god. (laughs) BIRD describes itself as, quote, campaigning for the safe medicine Ivermectin to be approved to prevent and cure COVID-19 around the world. One of the study's co-authors, Tess Lurie, is also one of the leaders of BIRD, which is about as big of a conflict of interest as you can get. Yup. A different... A different meta-analysis was published on June 28th in the Journal of Clinical Infectious Diseases, led by researchers at the University of Connecticut, and it arrived at the opposite conclusion about ivermectin. That study, in which all of the component studies were peer-reviewed, found that ivermectin, quote, did not reduce all-cause mortality and concluded that the drug is not a viable option to treat COVID-19 patients. So, the reason, Brett, (laughs) that you run into some trouble is that your drug doesn't do anything and is fucking dangerous. Yep. Um, and his whole alleging that there's a conspiracy afoot that the pharma, big pharma is trying to suppress this because they want to sell more vaccines. Like, there are treatments for COVID-19 that are effective, um, mainly dexamethasone and monoclonal antibodies. And only the president can afford them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not like these things don't exist. They're just not readily available for most people, which yeah. is why it's better to prevent people from getting it in the first place. Yeah. Or give everyone free healthcare. Yeah, that that would be nice too. Yeah. <laughs> and I I've talked about this before, but this only works because our institutions are already broken. Like it. Yeah, like the pharma billionaires companies are bad, but just yeah. not for this particular reason. <laughs> yeah, like it. If big if big pharma weren't corrupt as fuck, then they wouldn't be able to exploit that for this shit. Right. And. It's the same thing with the NSA. Like, it, reasonable people have been railing about the Patriot Act and, su- and the surveillance apparatus for decades, and it's because those things are bad. And like, 
if we were better at fixing what was broken in our society, Tucker wouldn't be able to do this. Yeah. So. It's more like weaponizing the language of the left. Like, hey, these things are problems. And then they they say, hey, these things are problems, and it's a conspiracy to kill you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so then that brings us back to the 30th, and Tucker has to hit that sweet NSA sweet spot again. Joy. A couple of days ago, we told you that the National Security Agency had read our emails and was effectively threatening us with them, leaking them. It's not a statement you would make lightly. No one wants to go on TV and say, the government's spying on me. You sound like a lunatic, except when it's true. And in this case, it is true. And of course, it's not just this show. They're spying on a lot of people, and they should stop because it's illegal. Yesterday, we had a long conversation with officials at the National Security Agency. We got a statement out of them, and they effectively conceded, yes, they read our emails. They have some justification for it, but it's not justified. It never is, except in cases when national security is threatened, and nothing that we did would ever threaten national security, period. Debatable. <laughs> yes, a stoking white rage might threaten national security. Yeah, um, sure sure would. <laughs> telling people that the FBI was orchestrating terrorist attacks. Um, yeah. So this is a fun example of how Tucker fudges the borders of the truth to inch things in the direction he wants them to go. Yesterday, when the NSA released that statement... Tucker complained that the statement didn't say whether or not they had read his emails. Now, a day later, the details are a little fuzzier in everyone's memory, and the new line is that the NSA statement effectively conceded that they read his emails. Hmm. Uh, see how that works? This is something that Tucker is really good at. It, he also did it with the lab leak theory. If there's any room for uncertainty, Tucker will seize on it and fill that uncertainty with whatever he wants the truth to be. Yep. So in this next clip, we we, uh, begin to see the fruits of Tucker's labor, and this was super interesting to me. Um, He he first announced this on Monday, that the NSA was surveilling him. By Wednesday, members of Congress are calling for an investigation. One in particular. Wonder who. (laughs) So what we need is an investigation into what exactly is going on. We have the largest bureaucracy in the history of... Of mankind. There's never been a human organization larger than the American federal government. And so we need to know what the important parts of it, the parts with a lot of power, are doing in our name. We need an investigation. And today at that hearing, at least one Republican member of Congress, Matt Gates of Florida, called for that. The most watched cable news host has been stating for the last several nights that the NSA has been monitoring his communications. And amazingly, the NSA has issued a statement that is so couched, it is functionally an admission. And it's not like the NSA's never lied to us. I mean, we were told that there was no bulk collection of Americans' data. Turns out, there was bulk collection of Americans' data. We cannot count on these people to police themselves. Join me in calling for an inspector general investigation into any monitoring that the NSA or any other element of the intelligence community has engaged in relative to Tucker Carlson. Because these denials, these couch denials, raise more questions than they provide answers. They gather the information and they threaten you with it. Information is power. The more they have, the more power they have over you. And if they don't like your politics, it's a problem. So we do need an investigation. And tonight, the House Minority Leader, Kevin McCarthy of California, has called for that. An investigation by the House Intelligence Committee. We'll see what happens. Hey, Matt. <sighs> Fucking Matt. Oh. Yeah, like, he's, he sounds like a guy you peaked in high school. 
This was interesting to me. So now that Tucker has fed the base this narrative about NSA spying, Republicans in Congress can season that narrative to appease the base. That in turn lends credibility to Tucker's allegations, and then he can go and platform Matt Gates and other Republicans who get on board with this and let them grandstand for a bit about how they're taking on the NSA and boost their popularity with the base in turn. It's this credibility feedback loop. Yeah, and as we've discussed, the NSA can't do anything that (laughs) wouldn't completely overturn any investigation that they've been doing into foreign agents so yeah like when i say tucker constructs the reality on his show this is what i mean yeah so he he brings on glenn greenwald because of course he does like if if (sighs) glenn greenwald has a has a weekly guest spot in your show and then you're talking about nsa surveillance you're not gonna not bring on glenn Glenn greenwald (laughs) come on um and like most of glenn greenwald's appearances he pretty much just parrots back everything that tucker has already said but I do find this bit near the end kind of interesting. I got a number of calls and texts, say one from Politico, asking me, well, who are you emailing? I mean, I think uh, clearly you would never claim your emails are being read by the government unless you could prove it. Again, you sound like a crazy person. We can prove it. It happened. But now the line is, well, you must have been emailing the wrong people. I was under the impression as a journalist and an American citizen, I have the right to email anybody I want. Is that not the standard any longer? Tucker, ponder the authoritarianism needed yeah. for them to say that. Think about the premise there. They're saying that if you talk to somebody that the NSA has decided should be spied upon, it means that that person, even though they've been charged with no crime and convicted of nothing, is up to no good. They're like a terrorist or a threat. And you yourself are also. The whole point of the reporting that we did is that the NSA spies on millions and millions of people indiscriminately. If you're a journalist, it's almost impossible not to talk to a target of the NSA. They target everybody constantly all the time. That's why they're this huge, sprawling agency. But the, the authoritarianism that is pervading journalism says, if you're talking to somebody the NSA doesn't like, you're a bad person. Fucking hate Glenn Greenwald. So, not what they said, but also, if you're talking to people <laughs> who at the NSA has the right to investigate, then they have the right to investigate you. Like, what... what? Is he? He sounds like he's just opposed to any preventative investigation at all. And like I personally, I would prefer that the system didn't work this way. But I'm kind of—I mean, if I were president, I would abolish the NSA. Um, <laughs> Good luck getting voted on that. <laughs> Go, getting voted for. Yeah. Well, maybe Tucker's creating the political will. Maybe I can ride his coattails. Maybe. Um, I will. I will <laughs> never run for office. I'm not qualified. <laughs> um, so. Again, that tells me that this framing tells me that what's probably going on here is Tucker getting caught up as an incidental person in, for his communication with somebody else. Here he's building in a preemptive attack in case that information becomes public. Look how authoritarian they are. Just because I tried to talk to someone, I thought this was America, you know. Yeah. I have the right to email anyone I want. <laughs> Fuck you. So it, that that's it for the NSA stuff for the time being, but I'm sure this will be a recurring thread for a while. Um, I'm sure... And to, to close our episode here, I had, there's one last narrative from Tucker's show this week that I want to talk about. So Tucker, we, we have, we've seen him inching closer to a full-throated embrace of the bioweapon narrative, right? He, he seems to be – he's leaving the door open. Yep. Um, here he plays a segment from his interview with someone named uh, Lei Minyan. She's a, a Chinese virologist who recently defected to, to, to the United States. Here's how he introduces her, and you can hear a subtle shift in how he's talking about the the development of this virus. 
Dr. Lee Mignon was one of the very first people to say that the coronavirus had, in fact, originated in a lab in Wuhan. And she knew this because she was a Chinese virologist who was tasked with studying where this virus came from. She told the truth and she had to defect to the United States. We just had an hour long conversation with her, one of the single most interesting conversations ever on this show about why the Chinese government developed this virus. We'll talk to her next. Okay, so the Chinese government developed it now, mm-hmm. purposely. Yep. Why did they develop this virus? Hmm. <sighs> um, Assuming the premise there a little bit. <laughs> so before I play any of this interview, I, I want to talk a little bit about, a little bit about Dr. Lei Minyan, because this is crazy. So she's often promoted as one of the top coronavirus researchers in the world. And while it's true that she did work at one of the world's top virology labs... She was fairly new to the field and had not studied coronaviruses prior to the COVID-19 pandemic. There are much bigger problems here than just her credentials, though. Since relatively early on in the COVID-19 pandemic, she's been popping up in American right-wing media to push the lab leak narrative. She's framed as a whistleblower insider who knows what really went down at Wuhan. A few things are important to note. First, her work explaining how she determined the virus is made in the lab has not been peer-reviewed, those papers were posted on Zenodo, an open access platform where anyone can post their research. A big part of the reason it gained traction in the U.S. was because it was promoted by the likes of one Stephen K. Bannon. Oh boy. Yeah. Bannon has repeatedly referenced Ian's work on his podcast, War Room Pandemic, and she has also appeared on that show. Bannon is about as hawkish on China as you can get. Uh, in 2017, in an interview with The Guardian, he was quoted as saying, We're going to war in the South China Sea, no doubt. Citation needed. (laughs) He also has some really fucked up beliefs about like historical historical cycles in which great powers destroy each other and history resets. Um Okay. Yeah, I want to do a Bannon episode eventually, so we'll we'll talk about all that. Um it might have to be like two or three episodes at this point. (laughs) But the point is he's somebody whose worldview is pretty inclined towards a war with China. And he seems to have been the primary facilitator of Le Mignon's quasi-celebrity status. Now, back in the early Trump years, when many of us first became acquainted with Mr. Bannon, at that time he was being bankrolled primarily by the Mercers. Since he was arrested for defrauding Trump supporters in the bullshit We Will Build the Wall campaign, uh, that Mercer money appears to have dried up. <laughs> Since then, he's found a new benefactor, a guy named, and I'm probably pronouncing this wrong, but Guao, Rang- Guao Wangui. Wang Wei is an expatriate Chinese billionaire, and together he and Bannon launched an organization called Rule of Law Society, whose stated mission is to, quote, investigate Chinese corruption and financially support victims of the regime. The Rule of Law Society has aggressively promoted Dr. Lei Minyan's work, despite never having previously published any scientific or medical research. In November, there was a really interesting report from the New York Times about how Wang Wei and Bannon had carefully crafted Yan's trajectory. The two of them, uh... Bannon and this billionaire, arranged for Dr. Yan to fly first class from China to the United States, arranged for her lodging in the U.S., and coached her on various media appearances. Yeah. Hmm. They also- Al- almost like it's not her virology expertise that makes her come and say mm. these things. Yeah. Uh, they also arranged interviews for her with conservative hosts like Lou Dobbs and Tucker Carlson. In her papers about the pandemic's origin, Yan failed to disclose her financial ties to the organization. So there appears to be some incredibly shady shit happening here. Yeah. 
uh, it merits a lot more reporting. I encourage everybody to go read that New York Times piece. Like, it, this should be the biggest fucking story. <laughs> and the fact that I had seen Le Mignon pop up on multiple outlets before I found out about any of this is a problem. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, so with that said, let's hear Tucker's most recent interview with her. Oh, boy. I want to be really clear about what you're saying. SARS happens years ago. The Chinese military decides this is an effective virus to turn into a bioweapon. They find SARS-CoV-2. They're doing research on it to make it a bioweapon. They test it in Wuhan. It gets out of control. They didn't expect that to happen. At that point, they realize, okay, it's out. They lied about that, but then they intentionally allowed some huge number of people, some infected from Wuhan, to travel around the world to infect the rest of the world. Exactly. So that's pretty fucking wild. Yep. Oh, God. (laughs) Like That accelerated quickly. (laughs) Yeah, so at the end of last week, Tucker was still unsure. Now this is pretty close to like, oh yeah, it's a bioweapon. Yeah. Um, But... he said it yeah. like, and then his guest was like, yes, who claims to have expertise on it. Yeah. And then here they talk about why so many scientists disagree with her. turns out that too is a conspiracy. Ah, so many questions. Um, let, let's just start with the, the virus itself. You heard eminent, very famous, highly respected American researchers and virologists say we've taken a look at this virus, and there's no chance it could have been manufactured in a lab. I mean, uh, I know this kind of people always telling that there is no way it comes from lab. What I can tell you is China government actually spent many years to infiltrate uh, the scientific world. And uh, also, I know these people, they actually try to help China government for their own purpose. So except for some innocent scientists who may not have enough experience in virus, those top scientists like the Peter Dashak, or like Ralph Barrick, or like uh, Christine Anderson, they are lying. They know they are lying. They just try to use misinformation to help China government for their own benefits. And these are all later reviewed uh, again and again gradually. Well, they should be in prison if that's true immediately. Yes. So this is where we're at, I guess. Yeah, so her views aren't the scientific consensus because China has infiltrated the scientific community and compromised them all. <sighs> like, not good. Dangerous. Yeah, and and this is this is why I was so frustrated over the last two weeks with how I saw Tucker being covered because it was all, oh look, he called General Milley a pig. Like yeah, he, he's gonna get us into a fucking war. Yeah, <laughs> like, dude. It. It, and even the Millie thing, it came after seven minutes of straight white supremacist propaganda. Like, yep. oh, but let's talk about his coverage of Britney Spears. Like, <sighs> I mean, how how many takes did you see about his claim to be Saddam with the NSA? Whether or not that's true, he is engaged in dangerous shit. Yes, he and like, is. Sometimes I can't tell if he's a maniacal villain or a useful idiot, but either way, this shit is bad. Yeah, yeah. So... Yeah, so um, other I shouldn't be the only one pointing this out. Like, true. Uh, other media do better. Yeah, <laughs> like, really. Pay attention to what he's doing. This shit is bad. Um, like, did they just assume that we all know that he's the worst and never talk about it? 
Like, yeah, like I don't, I don't give a shit if he said mean things about a general. Fuck off with that. Yeah. He's, oh, God. But I mean, he he endorsed some uh, some antitrust legislation that I'm in favor of this week. So there's that. Ooh. <laughs> How exciting. Um, yeah. So that's all I got this week. I, th- this might have been our bleakest episode, like consecutively. Is up there, I think. Yeah, but like, I, th- I really think this is important. Like he, like I said, I don't know how much of this is him being evil and how much he's just a useful idiot. <laughs> yeah. Strongly agree. Um, moving away from that, you're totally qualified to uh, run for office. So fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> if Marjorie Taylor Greene can get in and Matt Gates can get in, that's fair. You yeah. can do whatever you want. That's fair. I've, I've. <laughs> Uh, it might it might be in my favor that I've seldom ever tweeted. <laughs> yeah, like the biggest disqualifying thing about you is that you're not rich. Like that's yeah, yeah. So uh, keep it coming, patrons. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not running for anything. You're not funding a campaign. I promise. Um, <laughs> but I want I want to be uh amicable to the idea that like you're an average person can run you don't have to be right. like you know yeah absolutely yeah. like i mean people can do things about this like yeah honestly a big part of it is just paying attention all i'm doing is paying attention yeah <laughs> like i don't know man um i don't know anyone else that could pay attention to tucker carlson full time not <laughs> <laughs> yeah and god like and okay i mean i do this show after I get home from a work. And so like Yeah. If I could if I could ever do this as a job, there is so much I could fucking do. Um Troy does ungodly amounts of work <laughs> in a week. It's insane. And I want everyone to know. <laughs> so that's where we're at. Uh Tyler, what's our what's our sworn enemy? Uh the f- fucking everything, apparently. Oh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh man um the chinese communists i guess yeah yeah they're not great (laughs) oh man i how do i pick one how do i pick a sworn enemy this week man just it fucking the nsa being alive being alive in the same world as tucker carlson yeah um yep (laughs) agree All right, well, we'll this has been tuckered out. (laughs) We've got a website. um, You can find us on Twitter, find us on Patreon. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Thank you, everyone who supports supports the show. Um, Send us your definitions of white supremacy. I really will try to get Tucker to read them on the air. No promises, but I'll do my best. (laughs) So, yeah, uh, don't watch Tucker's show. I'll do it for you and try to enjoy your life. Yeah, thanks for listening. Buck up. It's going to get better.